Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verses 5 through 7 uh, are going to be our primary verses, our primary passage that we'll be considering today. Romans chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> Due to uh, a technical difficulty, we are re-recording this sermon, not on Sunday, but on Tuesday, and not in the gathering, but in my home office. And so uh, that is the context which we're delivering this, but by God's grace, it'll be helpful for us to navigate this uh, passage together. Remember, we've been in Romans chapter 12, where Paul uh, has introduced sort of a litany, uh, a long list of commands and ideas, particularly about our behavior, shifting from the first uh, 11 chapters of Romans that were heavy on doctrine, doctrine heavy on orthodoxy, uh, what we think as Christians, specifically about the nature of salvation, the gospel, that we are justified by love uh, as the title theme, if you will, of our uh, study in Romans these past number of years. Um, and as we get into Romans 13, we should be mindful of that context because that behavior uh, was also about our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our brothers and sisters, on into our relationship with a wider society, namely, as we get to chapter 13, government, a relationship with governing authorities. And yet today we're going on a tangent. Now, I love tangents, um, and a tangent is, of course, uh, a path which takes you away from your destination. <clears throat> but a good tangent or a relevant tangent, tangent only seems to do so. In, in other words, it only seems to take us away from our destination. A good tangent takes you away from that objective, at least initially, so that it can change you, so that when you arrive or when we arrive at that destination or at that conclusion, we are able to recognize or understand or enjoy that arrival more fully. Now, ironically, in our passage, in order, I think, to go on our relevant tangent today, we're going to have to resist a much less interesting tangent. Paul is going to talk about taxes, but he's not really talking about taxes. You know what I mean? Paul is going to say, again, that we should be in subjection to governing authorities in verse 5. He's going to say that this subjection manifests in some really practical ways, namely like paying a fair price for things, giving respect to respectable people and honoring honorable people, and yep, even paying taxes. Now, while discussing taxes at length would be a tangent in and of itself from the seemingly overall correspondence that Paul has to first century Rome, it's really not that interesting. Taxes, I'm sorry, are just not that interesting. What is interesting, I think, though, is what Paul is really talking about. You see, he gets this teaching from Jesus. That's the tangent I'm interested in. That's the tangent I think is pretty interesting and good and relevant and helpful. That's what I'd like to talk about today. Why does Jesus want us to pay our taxes? Why does he care? That digression, I think, unlike one simply talking about taxes, but understanding Jesus and why he is teaching about this, that promises to lead us to the very heart of God. Here's how we'll organize our time. As we look 
at Romans 13. We'll go over to Matthew 22 and then back to Romans. So our tangent will take us into Romans chapter 20, or rather Matthew chapter 22, but ultimately we'll find our way back to Romans. And here's how we'll organize our time. First, we'll look at two ways to pay taxes. And then second, we'll look at a third way to pay taxes. And remember, we're not talking about taxes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help as we open your word today. Wherever we might be as we listen to this, as we consider the truth and the beauty of your word, I pray that your truth would sharpen our minds, that your beauty would soften our hearts, would ultimately result in righteous living and gracious and humble acts of mercy to our neighbors, our families, our friends, that ultimately you would teach us, Father, what it is to be those who are made in your image, those who follow your Son, those who are being used by your grace in mysterious and wonderful ways to bring about your coming kingdom. And so we pray uh, that as we open this word, that you, Father, uh, would help me, help me to be clear and responsible with your word. And I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself, that as we hear your word proclaimed, we would have ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, and that our feet would be made ready for action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's talk first about two ways to pay taxes. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse 5. And Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Paul begins, as he did in verse 2, with another therefore. And remember, a therefore, that word, connects what has just been said with what's about to be said. And so when we look back, we read that God has a design and desire for the rulers of the world, those whom he has divinely put in positions of authority. He has designed them to bring order, namely by being a terror, he says, Paul does in verse 3, a terror to bad conduct. His desire then for governing authorities is that they would serve him and his purposes, not their own. That's why three different times, two in the previous passage and once in our current, three times he calls governing authorities, those in these positions, he calls them his servants. Therefore, Paul says, in light of God's desire and design for those in positions of social authority, he says again, Christians should be in subjection to them. The meta reason, big picture for this instruction is that their authority is a reflection of God's authority. And so our response as followers of Jesus to earthly authority is a reflection of our response to divine authority. You with me? The Apostle Peter put it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. You hear that again? For the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent uh, by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, in Paul's case, as he is writing to Rome, he goes deeper still. He gives us two more reasons, as it were, one negative and one positive for subjection um, and subjecting ourselves to the ruling authorities, which further our understanding, I think, of Paul's instruction to the church here in verses five through seven. Now, both of those instructions, the negative and the positive, are in verse five. 
First, he says, we should be subject to avoid God's wrath. Second, we should be subject for the sake of conscience. So he's saying we should be in subjection to prevent something bad, that is wrath, and because it's good, it's moral. Paul goes on to explain what this looks like, and he gets real specific. Check out verse 6, Romans chapter 13. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He says, because of this, now what's this again? Because of these two reasons, consequence and conscience, we should pay taxes. Do you see? Those are the two ways. The plainest reading of Romans chapter 13, verses 5 through 7, plainest reading of this text, tells us that we should pay our taxes for fear of government and fear of God, to prevent something bad, and because it's good, wrath and morality, consequence and conscience, two ways. And then Paul carries this duality on through revenue, respect, and honor. We should pay a fair price because of wrath and morality. We should respect respectable people and honor honorable people for the same two reasons, wrath and morality. These are the two ways that we should pay taxes. But we're not really talking about taxes. So let's go on a tangent. Please meet me, Matthew chapter 22. You see, if we're not careful, Paul's teaching falls into a very clean and spiritually sterilized framework of right and wrong. The same could be true of any and every rule or regulation or instruction we read in the scriptures, which we'll consider more in verses 8 through 10 next week. See, if you pay taxes, we might presume you're right. And if you don't pay taxes, you're wrong. If you pay respect, you're right. If you don't pay respect, you're wrong, and so on. We could apply any particular regulation, rule, law, uh, teaching in the scriptures this way if we're not careful. But when we go back and listen to Jesus' teaching on the matter, I think we're invited to view this whole thing very differently. We're invited into a third way. Matthew tells us that some religious folks came to Jesus one day. It was a group, excuse me, comprised of two smaller groups. There were some who were were told the disciples of the Pharisees sect. Uh, Others were part of a sect called the Herodians. And now these two groups of people didn't like each other. In fact, they disagreed about almost everything. It seems that the one thing that they could agree upon is that they didn't like Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, how often this happens? It's deeply human that despite what might separate us or despite what might be different or what we disagree with, a lot of times our mutual hatred or a common enemy really unites us. And so that's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 22. Together, they ask Jesus a question. Look, Matthew chapter 22, verse 16 and 17. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Notice their intentions aren't pure. In fact, Matthew says in the wider context that they have come to try to test Jesus or trick him. And so their compliment, what feels like them um, gassing Jesus a little bit here, is completely artificial. They're trying to trap him. They want to force him into an impossible choice. 
They want to know what he's going to say about paying taxes. But remember, we're not talking about taxes. You see, these two groups had very different views about government and specifically about taxes. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Rome. They viewed the governing authorities as oppressive and greedy. The Herodians were beholden to Rome. Their very name bore their association with King Herod, revealing their allegiance to the governing or ruling powers. And now they have a question for Jesus. It's important to note that they both likely paid taxes or they probably wouldn't be around to be asking this question. (laughs) One group did so, though, because they feared God. The other did so because they feared government. One was motivated by conscience, the other by consequence. In other words, there were two kinds of ways of paying taxes that they were used to and that they exhibited in these two different groups. Their question was about a particular tax. It was called the poll tax. See, unlike property or sales tax in our day or other taxes which we may pay for common benefits or the maintenance of civil society, poll taxes were part of a corrupt mechanism to take money from citizens and fill the emperor's coffers with no social impact whatsoever. The poor got poorer and the rich got richer. It was a wildly unpopular tax. And so it was a really important social and theological question of the day. And what a lot of Jewish teachers of the law would often do is there would be a question of the day that they would go around and interact with different teachers, asking that particular question as a way to converse, as a way in good faith to dialogue. Uh, but that wasn't exactly what was going on here. This, this was the question that they were bringing to Jesus by way of tripping him up. And the question was simply, should God's people pay it? Should God's people pay this poll tax? Now, obviously, they frame it as a yes or no question, right? They, they ask, is it lawful? Is it proper? Is it right? Is it wrong? Yes or no? See, if Jesus says yes, the Herodians would have presumably been pumped, but the Pharisees would not have been very happy. If Jesus says no, the Pharisees would love it, but he'd likely incite a rebellion, and Jesus would catch serious and premature heat from the government. You see, we're not really talking about taxes. In response, Jesus teaches us a third way. Look at Matthew 22, verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus sees right through it, doesn't he? He sees right through their ploy. And can I suggest to you, he always does. He sees right through you. He sees right through me. He knows that they're not talking about taxes. The problem is not what to do with the poll tax. Notice, not only does Matthew tell us that Jesus was aware of their malice or their evil intentions is what that word really means. But Jesus says they're putting him to the test and he even calls them hypocrites. Now, why does he do that? Because they're not being genuine. They're wearing a lie. And that's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is like putting a lie on, like, like a layer of clothing. It's a mask. It's a shell. You see, Jesus knows these are not seekers. These are hucksters. These are not curious people. They're being presumptuous. They're not being honest. They're being deceptive. He's saying that while they might be motivated by morality and wrath, behind that motivation is a selfish intention. He says, essentially, that we're not talking about taxes. Jesus continues in verse 19. 
show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they all said, Caesar's. So Jesus gets a coin and it's called a denarius. It's the equivalent of a day's wage for a laborer in the first century in that particular part of the world. He asks whose image and whose name are on the coin. Well, on a denarius, one side bore the portrait of the emperor, and on the other side, the words God and high priest. And pious Jews saw one side of the coin as breaking the second commandment, make no graven images. They saw the other side as breaking the first commandment, no other gods. So this seemingly innocuous question is teeming with spiritual implications. Jesus is being tested. And we can almost sense, can't we? Can't you almost feel the crowd leaning in and saying, oh my goodness, where is this going? He's asked for a coin. What are we going to, what's he going to say next? Here's how Jesus responds. Then he said to them, verse 21, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So the question is this, should God's people pay the poll tax? And Jesus answer, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. It's profound, isn't it? It's clear. It's simple. And yet for 2000 years, Bible readers have been trying to unpack its meaning and understand what is it exactly that Jesus is getting at. Immediately, what's probably most clear is immediately people are amazed. They're stunned. They're overwhelmed by the logic and by the way in which Jesus handled a completely lose-lose situation. See, the Herodians and the Pharisees even walk away, we're told, without saying a word. Like preachers, they were rarely not saying words. And yet, here they are, stunned, silent, walking away. What happened? Well, these religious hypocrites ask Jesus what they think is a two-sided question. Who's right? Who's wrong? And Jesus, in essence, writes a third way on the edge of the coin. That's how I heard someone put it last week. I thought it was brilliant. He writes a third way on the edge of the coin. You're both right, he says, and you're both wrong. Yes, you should pay the tax, but we're not talking about paying taxes. Jesus says, we're talking about your hearts. Church, my brothers and sisters, do you know that you can do the right things and still be wrong? Do you know you can pay your taxes in accordance with the governing authorities out of morality or wrath and still not be in subjection to God? Do you know you can obey and disobey at the exact same time? In other words, we can do what God's telling us to do and still be hypocrites. We can still wear a lie. We can still pretend that's what Jesus is getting at. That's why we're not talking about taxes. We're talking about the heart. That's the third way. See, in uh, the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus kind of goes off. It's a monologue popularly known as the seven woes. Matthew, like much of the gospel accounts, does not write chronologically. That's particularly true of his writing. 
In other words, we're not getting the sayings, the teachings, and the works of Jesus in sequential order. We're actually getting them in, in a thematic way. And so we can tell a lot by the way that Matthew organizes his text. Specifically, Matthew 23 makes connection and makes even more sense of Matthew chapter 22. They serve in relationship with one another, not just in time, but also in content. See, in the seven woes, Jesus details the idea of hypocrisy over and over and over again. If you're still in Matthew 22, move your eyes down to Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you. Jesus says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Notice, it's not evil to tithe your spices. Jesus says, these you ought to have done. These things are extreme. I I don't recommend going home and siphoning out 10% of your salt and sugars and dill and all of this. But it's not wrong. It's extreme, but it's not wrong. In many ways, it's moral. And likely, they were doing that. They they were being meticulous about setting aside 10% of their resources because they feared wrath and they wanted to demonstrate their faithfulness to God. However, there's a third way. You see, they were tithing their spices, Jesus says, to the neglect of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Their habits were right, but their hearts were wrong. That's why they're hypocrites. They were sure to do the visible acts of righteousness, making sure to show all of the herbs and spices and things that they had done, visible, tangible, literal, but they had not taken care of the interior work of their soul, of their hearts, in the form of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Are you with me? That's the tangent. Let's see if it's good, if it's relevant. Back in Romans Paul's instruction seems pretty straightforward. Be in subjection. Pay your taxes. Pay respect. Pay revenue. Pay honor. Our motivations are consequence and conscience. Two ways. Yet all of his instruction, all that Paul is saying here in Romans 13, bears connection and context with his original charge back in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, do you see, we aren't talking about taxes. We're talking about worship. We're talking about transformation. We're talking about renewal. We're talking about your heart. I think we should pay our taxes, but not because it's right, not simply because it's moral. Rather, 
I think we should pay our taxes because God is bringing healing to the world. You see, if we are unwilling to do the basic work of sharing in the common expenses and courtesies of our neighbors, then why in the world should we expect them to listen to us about the weightier matters of the kingdom, like justice and mercy and faithfulness? Right now, the integrity of our witness, I believe, is really fragile. I think for far too long, as I've observed the Christian story in the 21st century as I participated in the Christian church for really my entire life. For far too long, we've been happy to be a religion of rights and wrongs rather than a people of healing and transformation and love. My wife, Laura, shared a conversation with me uh, last week. It was with Brene Brown and Franciscan father Richard Rohr Um, Among other things, they were discussing the purpose of the Christian church. And I found their conversation deeply encouraging and also really frustrating. So that means it's a probably means it's a really good conversation. In it, Father Rohr explained that the church in the West, particularly in America, has become a place of learning and no longer a place of healing. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying truth you should have done without neglecting healing. Doctrine, you should have done without neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. Paying your taxes, you should have done without neglecting the renewal of your mind and the worship of God. In other words, we are committed to truth in this day and age all too often to the neglect of beauty. That's hypocrisy. Because truth and beauty belong together. I think this dichotomy is expressed in our response to this teaching today. See, some of us are tempted, I think, not to subject ourselves to governing authorities and only do the work of love. For others of us, it's the opposite, though. We relish in the clear lines of rights and wrongs and neglect being a people of grace and mercy. It's almost like every time we come to gather with God's people, we come to Jesus and we just say, who's right? Who's wrong? Yes or no. Are you going to validate me or correct me today? And he writes a third way on the edge of the coin, doesn't he? Church, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not die to help you do the right things and avoid the wrong things. He died to make you new. He rose to heal and restore and forgive and redeem and love you. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine if we lived not like people who thought we were right all the time, but like people who knew we were loved? Can you imagine What would happen in our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our places of work, in our own fellowship as God's people, if we lived like not like people who were right, but like people who were loved? See, religion is ultimately a very uninteresting tangent that has a nice black and white answer to just about everything. It has rights and wrongs. It sees two ways to live. 
Jesus takes us on a much more interesting and relevant journey, not simply of good and evil, but of worship and healing and transformation and worship and love and surrender and grace and mercy and justice and faithfulness. Religion's a wide road tangent. Jesus' way is narrow. Go the narrow way. Pay your taxes so we can seek justice. Pay respect so we can show mercy. Pay revenue so we can demonstrate faithfulness. You see, we're not talking about taxes at all, are we? Father, help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.